Well, greetings to you on this fourth Sunday of Advent, as we have thought through together this season of expectation and waiting, a season that trains us and trains our hearts and our minds, trains our our eyes to look forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that we celebrate Christmas tomorrow reminds us that, in fact, he will come again, for he has come. That long expectation of the people of God waiting and waiting and waiting. How long, O Lord, how long, we could say, is the cry of the Old Testament. And yet Jesus did come, born of a virgin, there in the manger. And so it reassures us. So as we look forward, we look back. We look back for the confidence and reassurance that our hopes for the future are indeed not in vain. So today, on this fourth Sunday of Advent, we take up this encounter between Mary and the angel Gabriel as the announcement is given to Mary uh, over the fact that she, this young virgin, will in fact give birth and give birth to Messiah. And Mark read the text, so I won't read it again, but we'll be looking at that the early part of that section, uh, 26 to 38. But we'll be considering that front end as Mary receives this revelation and as we can understand, is quite dazed by it all. What, what's happening? Uh, Gabriel appears. We know that she is, is shocked. He, he acknowledges her, um, uh, says hello to her, essentially. Hail, we have in our text, but essentially it's just a greeting of, of hello. And uh, when an angel just arrives and says hello, you know, it, it's, it throws you off. It's not what you expect. And, uh, and Mary's even flummoxed by this uh, because the angel says, Hail Mary, you are highly favored of the Lord. And it says she she pondered, what, what kind of greeting is this? And and obviously the look on her face was horror because uh, the angel, you know, Gabriel has to tell her, do not be afraid. And we understand why she would be afraid. You'd be afraid too if uh, Gabriel popped into your midst, not a chubby little cherub, but in fact a, uh, a, a warrior angel uh, sent from God. And so Mary is thrown back by this. But then as she is given a sense maybe to gather herself and, and uh, get ears to hear now, uh, because not only is the appearing shocking, but of course the, the whole conversation is shocking. For a young girl, you know, maybe 14, 15, you know, somewhere around there. So we're dealing with a, uh, a teenager. And as a, uh, as a person who spends his whole life working with teenagers, uh, um, uh, it's an amazing thing that takes place here. So in this conversation, I want us to just make a couple observations about this encounter with Mary, but of course, through this to the one that Mary is about to give birth to uh, tomorrow. And for us to let this experience and this encounter kind of set the trajectory for the celebration of the birth of Christ and then for the ministry of Christ. And then through that, as we thought about uh, in our service uh, two nights ago, where Paul says to the Philippians, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we, that, was our, that was our thought the other night. The, the, the charge of Christmas, if you will, is to, to take this. We look, right? This story is not about us. But as we observe Christ, then we are to do something with it. it the primary thing is not what you do. The primary thing is him and what he's done. But it does call you to something. It calls you to have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. So this whole story then kind of sets the trajectory and anchors us, if you will, um, uh, or roots us, 
um, whatever a good metaphor would be, uh, to, to then live our Christian life. So let's think about this story for a few minutes. As we think about this encounter between the angel and Mary, and therefore the incarnation itself, uh, we learn at the very beginning of the humility of the whole thing. Uh, the, the fa- and again, let's go back to what we thought about in that Philippians 2 passage the other night. Right? Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form God, did not consider equality with God in terms of glory, something to be clung on to, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming man, and uh, becoming obedient even to death. The whole, the whole passage there in that Philippians 2 uh, passage is Paul challenging the church to have that mind in you, a mind of humility, of self-emptying, like the self-emptying of the Lord Jesus Christ, again, not in terms of his attributes, but in terms of his honor, in terms of his status, in terms of his privilege. He, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and poured himself out for the sake of those whom he loved, right? We see him... Uh, taking on flesh, which might not seem like a huge deal to us because we've all done it, but for the for Almighty God, for Yahweh to be laying in a feeding trough and nursing at his mother's breast, that that, that is self-emptying. To live a life in which people are, are constantly questioning your identity and then finally so much to the point that they spit on you and execute you. This kind of self-emptying as one who in the midst of this is loving his disciples and and washing their feet, uh, we see the humility that Paul is talking about here. And we see it here in this text in the fact that when the Lord sends Gabriel to the woman, right, to, to uh, Mary, uh, where, does, where does he find her? What woman is this? It's a woman from the middle of nowhere. This is a woman of no status. This is a woman from, as we know, we've heard it many times, the backwater towns of Galilee and Nazareth. And we see in the very beginning God coming in these humble, in this humble state. Not coming to the big city, but finding his servant there in a little small dinky town in the middle of nowhere. And to even contemplate that this whole thing goes down tomorrow in a stable somewhere where no one even knows about it, except these lowly angels who have the veil of heaven ripped open for them so they're able to gaze, if you will, into the, the, the throne room of God where the heavenly hosts are singing praise to him, right? This heavenly choir begins singing. The, again, the fact that all of this is done in obscurity sets the trajectory for the whole ministry of Jesus. Jesus is not desperate for your honor. He knows the honor he has before the Father, and he will receive honor. Remember the Philippians 2 passage ends, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, but he was happy, if you will, to empty himself for the sake of his brothers. And so here at the very beginning, this interaction has a certain humility to it in that Mary is in the middle of nowhere, that she's a, 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 a teenage girl uh, in the backwater town of Galilee. So it's humble. Secondly, of course, it's virginal. Mary's a virgin. And we know about the virgin birth. This is, this is one of those uh, uh, 
points over which Christians fought at the turn of last century, back in the uh, the turn of the, the 20th century. And one of the fundamental points that was debated was the idea of the virgin birth and whether or not this was essential for us as Christians to believe and whether it's even possible. You know, the Christian liberals began to deny that truth altogether. But it is essential. And Luke draws us to the point here by repeating it multiple times. In verse 27, to a, she came to Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. For Luke, it's important for Theophilus, his audience, and through Theophilus to us, that we know that indeed Mary was a virgin. This by all human standards, was impossible. Now, we know in the, in the uh, history of Israel, they had become somewhat familiar, at least in the patriarchs, with barren women giving birth. The Lord made the point pretty clearly with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, three times repeated. These guys either, you know, they, they have the, the misfortune of going through the, 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 the pain of barrenness, but it's by the providence of God that Sarah was barren and that Rebecca was barren, and that Rachel was barren. The Lord was making the point. Yes, Abraham, through you, I'm going to, I'm going to bless all the nations. You're going to become a great nation. But, but lest you forget, let me make it clear each time, it is of me. This status is gift, pure gift from me. But here with Mary, now Elizabeth, we, just, we had just prior to this, of course, Elizabeth uh, receiving uh, an announcement through Zecharias that uh, that she was going to give birth, and she was barren. But with Mary, it's different. It's not a barren woman. It's a teenage virgin. And what's going on there? Why is this significant? We know it's prophesied in Isaiah 7, so in that sense, it is the fulfillment of a prophecy. It is a sign that the people of God would get that their deliverance is near. But why is it theologically important? Well, it tells us something. It tells us again that the incarnation is pure gift. This is not man's doing in any way. This is pure gift from God. She is indeed the highly favored one. She is the one given the gift of bearing Messiah. But also, it's important that Jesus Christ be truly man and truly God. As such, he does bear the DNA of Mary but also he comes from, if you will, virgin soil. As man was made from the dirt, so Jesus Christ is of virgin soil. We have, in some sense, Adam and Adam, Adam's lineage taken up in Jesus. He is true man, right? He's, he's true, truly human. He is born of a woman. And yet there is this very distinct and clear break with the line of Adam, a true uniqueness to the conception and birth and therefore life of Jesus as well. That while in the one sense he bears true human flesh and DNA, in another sense, being born of a virgin, we have this distinct break from Adam and as such a new creation, a new line, if you will, of humanity into which if we are grafted by faith, we can be delivered. But Jesus Christ is a new beginning. He is a new creation. And in him there is new creation. And hence he is born of a virgin. So we have the humility of the whole thing. We have the virginal nature of it. I mean, I've said this before, that Mary, Mary is the picture of what Israel was supposed to be. Israel was supposed to be the virgin bride of God. 
the pure carrier of Messiah to the world. That's what Israel as a whole was to be and how desperately they had derailed themselves off the tracks. But Mary represents everything Israel is supposed to be and wasn't. And yet Mary is a gift. Just as Messiah is a gift, so Mary is a gift to Israel. God just gives, grants this virgin, not that she's pure from sin, but in, in, uh, in her sexual purity, she represents the spiritual purity that Israel was supposed to be. So we have the humility and the, virgin, uh, the, the fact that it's of a virgin. And then thirdly, this message, this truth, this good news, this declaration of Gabriel is salvific. Right? It's salvific. Gabriel gives her the name. This is not, not leaving it to you to name this child. Here's the name. The name will be Jesus, the Lord our salvation, or the Lord our you know delivers, is what the name Jesus means. And so the name is given because he is going to be one who will deliver his people. And you hear that in the song that Mary, again, just read, read the song of Mary again on your own, verses 46 to 55, and think of a, a teenage girl who, who gets this revelation and then breaks into song. And the song, the poetic theological song that comes out of her is the Magnificat. It's just radiant and beautiful. But what she acknowledges in there is that he is our savior. He is going to set things right. He's going to turn things back on their, on their feet. Everything's been turned on its head through sin and the fall, the curse. It's been up, turned upside down. But Jesus is going to come and he's going to set things back right. His name will be Jesus because he will deliver his people. Indeed, that long foretold deliverance of God's people, the deliverance that was pictured in the many deliverances of God's people, deliverance from Egypt and deliverance through the judges and deliverance through David and deliverance through Cyrus, all these different little mini deliverances which never seemed to last. They were there and then they'd kind of fade away. We're all pointing forward to the one who would come and finally and truly deliver his people and that one is here. His name will be Jesus, for he will be the one that will deliver his people. This good news is salvific. It's about a savior who's going to come and set things right. Not merely politically, right? but he's going to set things right spiritually. He's going to take our sin and deal with it once and for all. Even again, throughout the Old Testament, all those pictures of cleansing, all those pictures of, of forgiveness, which had to be done year after year after year because, again, they fade away. Right? We have to have the Day of Atonement because it fades away. So every year we have to come back and do it again and do it again and do it again. As a reminder, the author of Hebrews says, but now is the one coming, even Jesus, who will do it once and for all so that it need never be done again. For now, truly, God's people have been delivered from their enemies and from their sins. So we have the humility of it. We have the fact that it's pure and virginal. We have the fact that it's salvific. And then fourthly, we have the fact that it's divine. It's divine. Which you get in some sense in the virgin birth. But again, I would look at the virgin birth as more a new beginning. It's a new humanity. right? It's, it's, it's man born of virgin soil. But here, Mary learns even more than that that his name, he will be son of the highest. This is in verse 32. He will be great, after being told that he will be called Jesus, he will be great, and will be called son of the highest. Son of the most high. 
But we'll talk about this in a second. There are royal implications to that, and that's going to be spoken clearly of here. And David was uh, Solomon. You'll remember uh, in that in that Second Samuel seven passage was he, he will be my son. Uh, Israel was called the son of God. Uh, the king in, in Psalm two is called the son of God. So it has royal implications. But of course, we know here it's even more dramatic than that. I mean, he is literally the son of God in the sense that he is not born of a man. Joseph is not his father. His father is literally God. By divine, miraculous conception, God is his father. And he is the son of God in a unique way. Think of John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world, he sent his, and the word we say only begotten, but the, the word there means uniquely begotten. Like he is the only one begotten this way. In some sense, we're all begotten of God, but he is the uniquely begotten son of God. He is begotten of God in a way that no other son is. His father, his father and his essence then is divine. He is a man, truly man, born of Mary. Yet he is truly God. As our Nicene Creed says, very God. A very God. Not very God like how much God is he? Oh no, he's very, trust me, he's very God. <laughs> That's not what very God means. Very God means truly, the Latin for, for true, very, right? He is true God. And some of the translations of the, the creed, which was written in the Greek, say that, right? True God of true God or very God of very God. He is of the essence and nature of God so that in his person are two distinct but whole natures. Now, there's, there's a, we, we've even done some table talks on this, the theology of this, the, the depths of this we can't plumb. We look at it and soon we just start hearing snapping and sizzling in the brain and smoke starts coming out of our ears because holding that mystery together is difficult, but it's essential. It's essential that this one who comes to bear our sins is none other than Yahweh himself. And we talked about this in, uh, in that sermon the other night. Right? Have this mind in you which was also in Christ who though he was in the very form God. It's the one who is in the very form God. He is equal to the Father that emptied himself and became a servant. And in so doing he did not in any way cease to be God, diminish himself as God, shave off a little bit of his godness so that he was merely just pretty God. No, he was very God, a very God. Fullness of Yahweh as man. So that when we look in the manger and we see the Christ child, as we call him, and it's right to say that, you see God as child. When you see him teaching in the temple, it is a, it is a it's a teenager in their teaching, and and he's truly human. He is truly a teenager or preteen, but it's God. When you see him being spit upon, and his beard plucked out, and beaten, and whipped, and mocked, and then crucified, it is God in the flesh. It is God as man doing these things. Therefore, Jesus, our Savior, we owe our salvation to God. 
Only he could do this for us. St. Anselm, around the year 1000, and St. Athanasius, 700 years before that, write works on why God will become man. Athanasius writes on the incarnation. Anselm writes why God became man. And in both of these, they say, because only God, only God could rescue us. Only God could plumb the depths. Only God could pay an infinite debt by giving up his infinite honor to deal with our sins. No, not even a perfect man. Had God just created a new Adam, merely human, but perfectly human, he could not die for us. He could not bear the weight of our sin because he's finite. He would have to pay infinitely for these things. But God as man is the only one who could come and repair the breach between humanity and divinity. And truly have it be said that in him, God and sinner is reconciled. Only he could pull these things together because he is truly God and truly man. So that in his very being is the reconciliation we so desperately need actually worked out and knitted together in his very person. So yes, he is the son of Mary bearing her DNA. But at the same time, he is the son of the Most High. So it's divine. And then fifthly, if I get my numbers right, it's royal. It's royal. Yes, he's divine, but also the throne of his father, David, is given to him. This Messiah, this child born of Mary, is the one who will come and set all things right because he will reign on the throne of his father, David. That promise that we heard read in 2 Samuel 7. And David says, oh, God, that whole little prayer after that, that psalm, essentially, that he prays and sings and uh, there at the end, he says, well, I know you're going to do it. I know you're going to do it. And a thousand years later, he did it. A thousand years later, he did it. And he did it with Solomon, and Solomon did build him a house, but, but Solomon was a shadowy figure. Solomon came and went. Solomon uh, himself acknowledges that we're like grass and we fade away. And even Solomon couldn't hold the glory. By the end, he's kind of twisted up in knots. But Solomon was a figure pointing forward to the one that would truly answer David's prayer and that would answer God's uh, uh, promise and pledge that he would establish his son, his descendant, upon the throne. And his descendant would be God's son. And through him, he would build a house for David. Through him, the temple would be established, and through him, the lineage of God's people would be established. Finally, one would come who would do for Israel what even David could not do for Israel, what Solomon could not do for Israel. Indeed, God himself would do it by sending his only begotten son to be David's son, yet David's Lord, to be the son of David, but also the son of the Most High. And so he comes and he reigns. The one born in that manger we know is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it's interesting that right at the very beginning, when the, the birth happens, immediately there's political clashing. This beautiful moment of the, the birth of the Savior is immediately met with murder. The wise men, I say immediately, we don't know how long after, but sometime after, the wise men come looking for Jesus. They see Herod, and Herod hears that there's a rival king. This whole birth is politically charged and results in murder, right? It's, it's combustible right at the very beginning as Herod seeks out to kill him. 
And when Jesus dies and they finally do get their hands on him as he surrenders himself to it willingly and brings himself under even the murderous hate of his own creatures and dies by their hand and yet at the same time dies for them, when he rises from the dead, he tells his disciples now, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The one we worship is now the king of kings. He is now the ruler of nations. All nations owe their obedience to him. Every nation, every person driving up and down the street who cares two bits about being in church today needs to acknowledge Christ as Lord. And one day they will. And so we go. It's what we're heralded. We are the heralds now who go forth and bring that message and call people to do it willingly before one day they will do it by force or just by absolute compulsion when they see the glory of God and they're on their faces before God. We will have our faces on the floor rejoicing and they will have theirs on the floor asking the mountains to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. For the one that we worship here at Christmas is in fact the King of Kings and the Lord of glory. And then finally, this proclamation is eternal and universal. Just to reiterate the point that I'm making, because he's told here that he will reign over, uh, the, he will have the throne of his father, David, verse 32, and then verse 33, and, his, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And I think that the, there will be no end is not merely a time reference. Right, but it's a it's a geographical rev. There is no end. Yes, he will reign over the house of Jacob, but of his reign there is no end. There's no end temporally, nor is there any end spatially. All things, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, and it will never be anything other than that. Jesus Christ is the Lord over heaven and earth, and he will reign. And the only thing he's doing, as we thought about a couple weeks ago, is he's got the angels holding back the winds of judgment on the four corners of the earth that are ready to, to bring that judgment upon the earth is the calling of his saints, the calling of his elect into glory. And so again, brothers and sisters, may we take this good news. And, and uh, uh, Todd, uh, as, we, as we came out and uh, Todd prayed for us as we began the service, uh, I was I, I was touched by his prayer that even in this time as we gather together with family as the name of Christ is being heralded though weaker and weaker in our society it's amazing how many stores you go into now and you don't hear Christmas carols it's 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 becoming more and more that it's uh, it's it's not present whereas when I was a kid even the most secular places that's just what you do at this time of season so the the echoes of Christmas even culturally are fading but that's, that, that just throws the burden upon us. We, we, we don't, hey, if God has the secularists playing Christmas carols at the local deli, okay, that, that's a nice thing if you walk in and you hear Hark the Herald playing in the background in a, in, a, in a pagan deli. But if it's not, we go, yeah, no, I get it. Why would it be? It's an odd thing. But that's on us then to herald the news and to call the people to recognize Christ and the universal reign because it's not just, it's not, hey, you must submit to him. It's the good news of the gospel. We are free, our savior, our deliverer has come. Praise be to God. So may we have this mind in us, this humility, this self-emptying, but may we do so with joy in heralding the good news of the gospel to our neighbors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we thank you for the birth of the King of Kings. We thank you, O Lord God, for the gift of this virgin soil that you, by your Holy Spirit, and through whom, by your Holy Spirit, Father, you brought forth Jesus Christ, true God of true God, and at the same time of our humanity, so that he might truly represent us before your seat of judgment, bearing our sin, delivering us from our curse, and, Father, now ruling over us. Indeed, make us agents of your mercy now, Make us the heralds that sing your glory among the nations. Father, and through us, would you be pleased, Lord God, to gather in your saints from the farthest corners of the world. Make your church faithful, we pray. And in this Advent season of waiting, Father, may you anchor us with hope. Root us in the truth that in looking upon Christ, we might be filled with confidence to know that he is coming again. And to know, Father, that through him, all that stood between us and you has been removed so that we are no longer slaves, but heirs, sons of yours. We give you thanks and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.